Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, we are um, this morning uh, finishing up the last two chapters in Isaiah. There is no children's church for those little ones that are looking to run out the door. We're switching up this week since the Schmitz are not able to be here this Sunday, and we'll have, we will have a children's church next Sunday, Lord willing. Um, so that's the plan, and we'll finish up the last, they'll finish up that last Christmas lesson. There's a series of three lessons that they're looking at. We are turning our hearts and minds to Isaiah 65 this morning. I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and to turn there with me. Last Sunday in chapters 63 and 64, Isaiah invited us to listen in, basically, on his heartfelt prayer for uh, our future salvation to be fulfilled. In the chapters even before those, in 60 to 62, he details the crushing defeat of the wicked and the crowning salvation of the righteous. And, um, and so really the only thing left for him to do is to pray that that would be fulfilled, that those realities would come to fruition. And that's exactly what we heard him doing as we looked through those chapters. He recalled God's character. He is in those chapters pleading for God's intervention. He is confessing the sins of God's people, and he is seeking the Lord's mercy and compassion in repentant faith. All of those things are happening in those prayers, in that extended prayer, I should say. And as we listen into his prayer, like poor and needy peasants, we glean some important life-giving spiritual morsels to help strengthen us as we go about the task of praying for our future salvation to be fulfilled. We underscored uh, some elements, we called them aspects or elements of prayer that are uh, of importance in all of our prayer lives if they're to be well-rounded. First, we talked about praise and affirmation, which is to say that we are to tell God essentially about himself, to affirm those things that are true about him, and to praise and thank him for his mighty deeds. Uh, Another element we said of prayer is this whole concept of intercession. To intercede is to uh, bring the requests of others before the throne of grace on their behalf. We also talked about a, a third aspect of prayer, which was confession. And confession is where you and I acknowledge our sin to God. We call sin what he calls sin. And, uh, and then we also, alongside true confession, have a spirit of repentance. True repentance and, and confession always involves a change of mind about our sin that results, it's so complete that it results in a change of action. It leads to righteous obedience. So we talked about all those different aspects of prayer. And as we listen in Isaiah's prayer, then he invites us, we said, to find refuge for our soul, to uh, offer the sacrifice of praise to God, and to whip the devil, to borrow the words of Thomas Brooks. He invites us to do all of those things. And we ended, we ended last week uh, looking at James chapter 5, where James actually reminds us that the same power that Isaiah wields in prayer, uh, or you know, fill in the blank, Moses, or, or uh, you know, Elijah, or Paul, or whoever, who, you, know, you think about these titans of the faith, the same power that they wield in prayer is available in our spiritual tool belt also if we are only disciplined to put it to use. We said, um, we looked at James 5, verse 16, where James says, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And so we were challenged last week in our text to pray, and among other things, to pray earnestly, to pray expectantly that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That has been our prayer, that's Isaiah's prayer, and it should be ours as well. 
But no sooner does Isaiah's prayer end in chapter 64 that God is then moved in chapter 65, which is where we are this morning, to respond. He gets real-time responses, which is cool. Uh, but I don't think you're getting, he, some of these responses are a little bit frightening. Isaiah has asked, as, you, as we went through the text, if you've read it, if you're familiar with it, if you were awake last week when we were teaching through it, why do you laugh? He asks these questions as he's, as he's, as he's praying. Um, and we said that that's, that's okay. In fact, we can ask questions as we pray. But he asks questions, if you, you boil them all down, it, they're questions that basically can be boiled down to, God, where are you? God, why have you gone silent? Right? In chapter 63, in, in verse uh, 15, he, he says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. God, where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? Right? That's, a, that's a question asking, God, where are you? Or in chapter uh, 63 and verse 17, Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our hearts from fearing you? Or in chapter 64 and verse 10, where he, he ends, he says, Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our precious things have become a ruin. And then he asks this question, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? So Isaiah, out of deep anguish and emotion, is, is perplexed as to why it seems, and that's the operative word here, why it seems as though God has gone into hiding. Why, God, have you hidden your face from us? Where have you gone? And God's response in chapter 65 and following makes clear that his apparent delay in responding to Israel's present distress and their present difficulties, that that Apparent delay is just that. It's apparent. It's apparent. You look at chapter 65 and verse 1. God speaks here in the opening verses. He says, this is God speaking, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offer sacrifices in gardens and burn incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you." God's initial response sets the record straight as he, as he uh, speaks back to Isaiah. God says, I am not in the business of hiding myself. Again, he says, and again and again, I have stretched out my hand to you all and you have slapped it away. Interestingly, Paul actually gives us some inspired commentary on the opening verses of chapter 65 in his letter to the church at Rome. If you look at Romans 9 and in Romans 10, he, uh, he alludes to these verses. Paul adds light to this text to show that, that God's plan of salvation 
has never been limited to just Israel, but has always had a worldwide scope that included both Israel and the nations. God's always intended to save sinners from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. With the nation of Israel, we said, being a beachhead through whom the gospel message would go forth into all the world. And so Paul reminds us that God's revelation about himself has never been hidden from man. That rather, man, the problem is man has hidden himself from God by his own uh, insistence on suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. God's response here to Isaiah's prayer reveals that the real reason it seems as though God is hiding himself from his people is that his people have stubbornly refused to, to approach him on his terms. They have refused to come to him on the basis of faith, but instead have tried to carve out their own rebellious path. And this rebellious refusal to submit to God's law in their hearts is exposed by their evil conduct. Right? It's conduct that's, that's rooted in their rejection of God's righteousness and, as Paul says, their vain attempts to establish a righteousness of their own. So God, though, as we look at this, it, he, as God speaks here, we have to understand God is so gracious. He is so filled with mercy, so absolutely committed to his eternal purposes to save sinners that God says in verse 1, I have permitted myself to be sought by those who didn't even ask for me. And I have permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. And so the real question God says you ought to be asking isn't, God, where have you gone? But rather, God, how can you be so patient? You know, sometimes people balk at the clear biblical teaching that God elects some unto salvation while leaving others to reap the just judgment that they deserve. But the wonder of wonders isn't that God saves some people, it's that God saves any people. That's what's so amazing. That's what should blow our minds. All of humanity is without excuse. Paul says, from, since, since creation, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. And God tells Isaiah here, not only have I given the nations an inexcusable revelation of myself in the glory of creation, he says, I've given you, Israel, all that, plus the privilege of being called my, by my name. He says, I've given you my law. I've given you my covenant promises. I've sent you my holy prophets time and again. He says, over and over and over, I have redeemed you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, and all I have to show for it is a people, he says, who continually provoke me to my face. And it's ironic that God says here that those who have scoffed at him and rebelliously spurned his law, he says, you think I've gone silent? Well, do not worry. There is a day coming when you will hear from me. Loud and clear. And we see that in verse 6. He says, these are smoke in my nostrils, verse 5, the fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom both their, iniqui their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their, into their bosom. God reminds 
those in rebellion, that there is a day of judgment that is coming when he will make himself known to his enemies in decisive and eternal condemnation. And this is echoing what we just saw back in the previous section, back in chapter 59 and again in chapter 60, 63. But as soon, it's interesting, as soon as he um, gives this word of judgment, he pivots from judgment to mercy. God says it doesn't have to be this way. And we see that in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. The picture in in verse 8 is is poignant. I wish we had time as we go through these verses to dig into some of the nuances of what Isaiah is saying. But we need to look at this for just a second. The word for new wine refers to the first juicing of the pressed grapes. It's not even really fermented. And it's like the Lord is the vine dresser walking through a vineyard and all he has found is just row after row after row of fruitless, fruitless grapes. And he's just ready to burn it all to the ground. And then suddenly he discovers a row of perfectly ripe grapes just out of Nowhere, it seems. And these grapes are so ripe, they are so perfect for harvesting, that they're, actually, they're so ripe, they're actually oozing juice on the vine. These are choice fruits. And it's as he sees this, the, the description here in verse 8 is as he decides, okay, among all the blight, there is a blessing to be found here. And that, that is how the Lord looks upon those who humbly turn to him in faith. Though we deserve, remember back in chapter 63, we deserve the fierce winepress of his wrath. Yet by his gracious doing, he has cultivated a remnant who are not smoke in his nostrils, but a blessing. And that is God's people. And for this remnant, this righteous remnant in eternal inheritance will be given to us beyond our wildest expectations. Verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it and my servants will dwell there. Uh, Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks in the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. The, the picture here is uh, Sharon is in the east Acor is in the west. It's, it has the idea of totality. All of, God's, all of God's land will be made new. And for this remnant, as quickly as he speaks about their blessing, he res- those who respond in faith, he warns about those who refuse him in rebellion. Verse 11. But to you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. Those are kind of the false gods of Canaan, I will just destine you for the sword, and all of you will bow down to the slaughter, because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear, and you did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. So, as we read through these opening 12 verses, God's response, we see this seesawing back and forth between, um, you know, God's blessing and encouragement and God's chastening. 
And it really it then sets the stage for the remainder of the dialogue that unfolds in the coming uh, half chapter of chapter 65 and then chapter 66. God's response to Isaiah's prayer in these verses maps out two divergent paths that you, can, you and I both can walk down in this present life. One is the path of faith and the other is the path of rebellion. And he wants us to understand that each path leads to a different destination. There are these detailed contrasts that we see over and again between those whom God will bless and what that blessing will look like and those whom God will judge and what that judgment will look like. And the defining difference between whether you're abiding in Christ is, is whether you're abiding in Christ on the basis of faith or whether you refuse to bow the knee of your heart in rebellion and go your own way. And so that's, that's essentially how these chapters unfold. It is Isaiah bouncing back and forth between blessing and cursing, uh, uh, confrontation and, com- and comfort and comfort and and uh, and being able to uh, build up his people. And he lays out as we go through this four, we're going to look at four contrasts this morning, highlighting the divergent possibilities and the amazing prospects of God's people versus those who reject him. We're going to look at four distinct contrasts as we move through verses uh, 13 of chapter 65 all the way to the end in chapter 66. The first contrast is given to us in verses 13 to 16, and that is Isaiah shows this contrast between those who will be blessed and those who will be cursed. Those who will be blessed and those who will be cursed. If you look at verse 13, God draws the inevitable conclusion based on the divergent paths that walked by those who respond in faith as opposed to those who respond and refuse God in rebellion. Look at verse 13. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name. The prospects here couldn't be more stark. The contrast couldn't be more more, uh, distinct. Those who respond to the Lord in faith, he said, will be fed and uh, and and, and have their drink to their heart's content. They'll have every physical need met in abundance in that day. Whereas those who rebel against the Lord will suffer deprivation and lack. Those who respond in faith won't just have an external needs, all their external needs met. Every internal need will be met as well. They will rejoice, he says, and shout joyfully. Whereas those who rebel will be put to shame and carry along with them anguish. That's kind of the idea uh, of crying out with a heavy heart. And they will have uh, suffer disintegration of every vital energy and purposeful activity That's what it means to have a broken spirit. Those who rebel against the Lord will leave their name for a curse. In other words, even the memory of them will be like recalling the Lord's curse, hardly something anyone wants to dwell on. Whereas those who respond in faith are given a new name. To have a new name is to be given a new nature, a new inheritance, a new family. Specifically, God's people will take possession of all the promises of God. 
You say, well, how can this be? How can there be such a contrast between the faithful and the faithless, between believers and between unbelievers? And the answer is, is in verse 16. Because the old order of things has passed away. He says, I can do this because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. And here's the reason, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. In other words, those who are blessed and those who invoke vows of loyalty to God, the only ones left are believers. This is who he's talking about here. This is why all who are his servants will be fed and drink and rejoice and shout joyfully and have a new name because they're the only ones left after God's judgment has been measured out. The God of truth that you see referenced there in verse 16 twice, literally in uh, Hebrew says the God of the amen. The God of the amen. In other words, God has confirmed his word. He has made all things new. He has created by his power and his grace a universal people, and he has showered them with all the eternal blessings they will ever need. And what's past in God's eyes, he says, is past like all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our wickedness. It will be past for, for us as well. It will not be called to mind. You know, every day, you and I, as we live our lives, our consciences are assaulted with our lusts, our anger, our selfishness, our pride, our jealousy, all the sins of the deeds of the flesh. And we see that. We see that multiplied in the world around us. And uh, it grieves us. But that won't always be the case. Isaiah says, one day the former troubles will be forgotten. One day those things will be taken away. And they're gone in God's eyes, and they will be experientially gone in ours who belong to him as well. So we see this contrast between those who are blessed and those, those who are cursed. There's a second contrast here in chapter 65 and verse 17. It runs all the way into chapter 66 and verse 5. And that is, we see those who enter kingdom glory and those who will be cast aside. We see this contrast between those who enter kingdom glory and those who will be cast aside. He's kind of teasing out the implications of the previous verses. And so, if you notice, that, um, in, at least in the NAS, I don't know about all the other translations, in the NAS, there's a, at the beginning of verse 17, there's a little connecting word there, for. When you see a for, that should tell you it's connected to what's before it. <laughs> In other words, he's either explaining or he's giving the reason or he, the author is giving some kind of, um, there's a connection between what's, what's about to be said and what came before it. And that's what we see him doing. He's connecting uh, what he says in verse 17 and following to what he has said previously. What God's doing, he is now explaining. He's almost like zooming in so we can see the details of this blessing that he summarized in verses 13 to 16. And the things we need to understand is, the thing we need to understand is that everything old will be made new. Everything. Look at verse 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. 
and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever, he says, in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. What God's describing here is a complete undoing of the curse. This, of course, will begin with Christ's return at the end of the tribulation period, his ushering in a, a kingdom of a thousand years. But that is just the beginning. That is just the beginning of an eternity in which all that was plunged into darkness will be, by the Lord's gracious and creative power, transformed into holiness and light. As uh, Alec Motier says in his excellent, excellent commentary on Isaiah, he says, not only its sorrows, me speaking of the new creation, but everything in the old order dimmed and diminished as it was by the infection of human sin, he says, will undergo a great renewal. There's been a building promise of new things all throughout these latter chapters and as you read through Isaiah. Um, Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 9 God's, God says, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Isaiah 42, verse 10, Sing to the Lord a new song. Isaiah 48, verse 6, He says, I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. Chapter 62 and verse 2, The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. New things, new songs, new names, it's all new. And with the sure promise of new things in kingdom glory for God's people, there also is the reality of things that are no longer. Verse 19, No longer will be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in uh, in it, verse uh, 20, an infant who lives but a few days. Verse 22, no longer will they build in another habit. No longer will they plant and another eat. Verse 23, no longer will they labor in vain or bear children for calamity. What God is describing here in verses 17 to 25 is the transformation of the created order. This is not an upgraded version of things. This is not technology and kind of a human achievement and advancement reaching kind of a fever pitch. This is a completely different world that has been created in righteousness and truth. Verse 24, it will come to pass that before they call, God says, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is the curse of Genesis 3 removed. You know, every Christmas we sing joy to the world. It's a beautiful hymn. We know it's well, but sometimes it's so familiar, we don't realize what it's teaching us, what it's instructing us in. In verse 3 of that hymn, right, 
uh, Isaac Watts says, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. And he says, far as the curse is found. That's what he's describing here. It's this in these verses. Isaiah is describing his blessings flowing out as far as the curse is found. You say, how can anybody approach a God that does this? A God who can create and recreate all things with just a word of his power. How can finite, sinful creatures dwell in the presence of a, of a transcendent God like that? Because verse 1 says, heaven, God says, heaven is my throne, verse 60, chapter 66, verse 1, and the earth is my footstool. I mean, the universe itself is not enough to contain such a transcendent and mighty God, much less the earth. But the reality is that even though God is transcendent, holy other is what we mean by transcendent, he is at the same time imminent. In other words, he is condescending in covenant faithfulness to a select group of people. You say, well, who, to whom? Who, who is he condescending to? Is it the mighty? Is it the wise? Is it the influential? Look at verse 2. For my hand made all these things. Thus says, uh, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. He says, but to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God's gracious gaze rests approvingly. His kingdom glory is going to be lavished on those who understand their sinfulness, who loathe it, and who long to live for him in faith-fueled obedience. That's what verse 2 is talking about. It is to those who respond to him in faith, humble and contrite, trembling at his word. But verse 4, he addresses those who have chosen their own ways, those whose souls delight in their abominations. He says, so I will choose their punishment and bring on them what they did not, or bring on them what they dread. To those who rebel, those who respond in hardened hearts and rebellion, God says, you chose to live for yourself. He says in verse 4, now I choose what I will do to you. And he brings on them what they dread. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. They will be cast aside. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, and they say mockingly, this is sarcastic, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. He says they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. This is not... This is not what you want to be on the receiving end of as a human being in that day. There's a third contrast that's given to us in verses 7 all the way down through verse 17. We see those who will rejoice, contrast between those who will rejoice and those who will be, those who will be repaid. Those who will rejoice and those who will be repaid. 
In verses 6 to uh, 9, really 7 and 9, probably 7 and 9, I think I made a wrong reference here in my notes. God narrates the coming transformation of the earth that results from his crushing defeat of the wicked, and he uses the imagery here of birth. Look at verse uh, 7. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Yeah, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Any gal who's given birth knows, even in the best case scenario, even in the best case scenario, no child is born without some kind of labor, right? No baby is born without some kind of pain, even if they come quickly. But here, what he describes is a deliverance that's so abrupt, so unexpected, it is clearly beyond the natural experience. God says Zion will be born before any travail and before any pain. He he gives his own commentary on that supernatural nature in verse 8. He says, who has heard of such a thing? Someone being born without any labor. Who has heard of such a thing as someone giving birth without pain? This is no ordinary thing. This is a miraculous work of God's transformative power in creation. You say, well, is such a thing, a miraculous thing, is that too hard for God? Obviously is not. Verse 9, God says, shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery? It's a rhetorical question. Shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? The the reality is this. When we're tempted to doubt God's power to act or to do or to deliver or to make all things new, we need to remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 77 and verse 13. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. And with this birth of, a, of his people in a new creation, as with any birth, there's joy, right? Anytime there's a, a child is born, that, there's great joy in that. And that's what you see him describing then in verses 10 down to verse 14. He says, be joyful with Jerusalem. Rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with the bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed and you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. And then you will see this and your heart will be glad and your bones will flourish like the new grass. And the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants. Jerusalem here, the place of the Lord's personal presence is, is personified by the writer, by Isaiah. And it's personified as if it, Jerusalem is a nursing mother. He says, and rather than being a source of mourning, which as Jerusalem often was in that day, a source of disappointment, a source of conflict for God's people, he says her future transformation will be one of joy, one of comfort, 
a source of satisfaction for every child of God who loves the Holy One of Israel who dwells there. But, just like he's done in every previous section, not everyone will rejoice in that day. Look at verse 14. But, the end of verse 14, he will be indignant toward his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one in the center, who eat swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice. They will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. He says, for I know their works and their thoughts. We said throughout this study that God's salvation includes two things. It includes the crushing defeat of the wicked and the crowning salvation of the righteous. We said you need to think of them as two sides of the same coin. And sometimes when God speaks about his salvation, he's talking about both of those realities as he is here. God's glory is seen in salvation through judgment. And here he promises that the one who rebels against his word, that's the picture in verse 17, the one who's basically involved in false worship and false religious activity, And the one who scorns the servant's work for other gods, he says they will be recompensed with judgment, with fire. There's a fourth contrast and final contrast in the last final verses of chapter 66. And that is Isaiah contrasts those who will return to God and those who will receive wrath. Those who return to God and those who receive wrath. Look again at verse 18. The time is coming, he said, to gather all nations and tongues, and they, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. I will will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring in your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. What he's describing here is the ingathering of the nations, the Gentiles, into God's eternal kingdom. That's kind of the big idea here. Back in chapter uh, 66, in verses 1 and 2, remember the distinguishing mark of those who respond in faith is that they tremble at God's word. Here, we see all who tremble at his word, worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth at his holy mountain. You say, well, how do they know about God? They're the ones that don't know about God. They've never heard of his fame or seen his glory. How do they know about it to come and to worship? He says, I will set a sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations. 
Tarshish and Put and Lud and all these places, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare to my, my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brethren, he says, from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord. This is the fulfillment, what he's describing here. It's future, but it really set its future into our day. In the, this is the great commission. The sign that he references in verse 19 is almost certainly the cross. It is almost certainly the cross. And the survivors, literally the escapees, are those who are not touched by God's judgment. It is believers taking the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as that effectual message goes out and God's spirit draws people to himself, he says there will be a harvest of souls among the Gentiles and they will come in. And this, this is what motivated Paul. At the end of Romans, in chapter 15 and verse 15 and 16, I believe he's alluding to this passage when he says, I have written very boldly to you on some point, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, why? So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He, he viewed his gospel ministry to the Gentiles and the harvest of souls that that ministry would bring in as he planted churches and preached and teached the word. He viewed that as an offering to the Lord, those people whom he would bring in, just like what Isaiah is describing here. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that creates a new humanity, both Jew and Gentile, who return to the Lord and participate in his eternal kingdom. It's the gospel that forms a fellowship of believing and worshiping people from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. They are the ones, verse 23, who come to bow down before the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of unity in and around the truth and the one who embodies that truth, which is Jesus Christ. But interestingly enough, the last word, the very last word in Isaiah is set apart for the dreaded alternative for those who've rebelled against God, those who've hardened their hearts against the truth. In his, his verse 24, he says, Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be in an, ab an abhorrence to all mankind. This is Isaiah's final appeal, if you will, in this book. Flee the wrath to come while you still have an opportunity. Flee the wrath to come because God's judgment is decis decisive and it is going to be eternal. The new Jerusalem is going to be one of eternal rejoicing and salvation for all who respond to the gospel call in faith, but there is a graveyard by that city. There is a graveyard by that city that serves as a reminder of what our salvation has rescued his people from. The wages of sin, Paul says, is what? Is death. And the fruit of rebellion, Isaiah says it multiple times, is destruction from the Almighty. And in that day, 
in that future glorious kingdom reality, God's people will be reminded that their Savior has dealt finally and fully with all that could ever threaten their eternal joy. He has put death to death. The contrasts here are so stark. Two divergent paths, each terminating with very different destinations. On the one hand, there are those who walk by faith, and they will be blessed, and they will enter kingdom glory, and they will rejoice, and they will return to the God who has saved them. On the other hand, there are those who walk the path of rebellion. And they will be cursed, and they will be cast aside, and they will be recompensed with their wicked deeds, and they will receive, he says in verse 24, eternal wrath. Jesus quotes these verses three times in Mark chapter 9, speaking of hell. And the reason hell is eternal is because the infinite offense of transgressing an infinitely holy God can never be fully satisfied. And the smoke God says, of their torment will go up forever. Revelation says forever and ever. And so the the text this morning, as we look at these chapters, begs us to ask, which path are you on? Which path will you choose? Because as you have breath, there is still time to change paths. You know, Isaiah's very name says it all, right? Isaiah, the name means Yahweh is salvation. Yes, our God is a transcendent God, that heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. And yes, this infinitely holy, omnipotent, transcendent God is uh, beyond containing, and yet he is imminent. He is so close that he promises to look with never-ending delight and love and favor on every humble and contrite sinner who trembles at his word. James says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. And what does he promise to do? He will exalt you. Jesus Christ is presented to us in this book as the son of David. He's presented as the Lord's servant. He is given to us in these final chapters as the Lord's anointed conqueror. And he suffered and he died and he rose from the grave to purchase an eternal redemption for every single person who calls upon him in faith. And we know, based on the authority of his word here, as well as in all the rest of scripture, that those whom he calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he what? Glorifies. And so this is our hope. And this is what we long for. The final chapters of of this book can be broken down into two things, prayer and promises. That's it. We cling to the promises of God and we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we long for that day. Oh, how we long for that day. You are so kind, so merciful, so patient. And you have what no eye has can conceive, nor ear can hear what you have prepared for those who love you. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us with such an eternal love. And help us not to 
not to lose sight of the big picture here. You've given us the, the, the commission to preach the gospel, to teach all the nations what you have commanded, to call them to repentance and faith. We pray that you'd do that, Lord, that you'd empower us to do that and help us to use the Christmas season to talk about those things with people who will listen. And we pray that you'd soften hearts and draw people to yourself. And um, or we thank you that, that you... Uh, that all that you have promised, you will fulfill. I mean, as surely as you have fulfilled the promises we've already seen realized from the book of Isaiah, we know that he's a true prophet and all these things will come to pass. So Lord, give us, give us faith to keep persevering as we saw in Revelation this morning. May we be those who overcome and may we receive the reward. And Lord, if there's any any who are on the outside looking in, we pray that you would draw their hearts to, the, to you this morning. They would see um, only two ways to live. And we pray that they would turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.